Okay. So Luke, um, from chapter 5, verse 33 to 611. That's Luke chapter 5. So starting from verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? For the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one, te- no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, the new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say, the old is better. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some of the heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what, was, uh, what is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man there whose right hand, there was a man there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up, stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And he looked around at um, them all and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Okay, if you've got that part of the Bible open, just keep it open. Uh, is that sound loud enough at the back? Can James hear? A bit more? Is that better? Okay. Let's pray and then we'll look at this part of the Bible. Heavenly Father, we just ask that as we look at Luke's Gospel. Uh, we pray that we would see Jesus clearly. We pray that you would help each one of us to trust in Jesus as our Lord and our Saviour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was studying engineering at New South Wales Uni, I had a morning which I was a little bit bored. We were supposed to be in an engineering maths lecture. I think it was probably vector calculus. And across the hall, I knew that there was an arts lecture in philosophy. So I thought I'd go along to that instead. And if you think about it, an engineering student in an arts lecture is about as out of place as it's possible to imagine anything. You don't believe me. Anyway, trust me, it is. In the passage we're looking at today, we see Jesus not fitting in. But the difference is, he belongs. In fact, he's in charge. He's the boss. And the people who think they are in charge, they won't accept him. 
it's a little bit like the parable that you'll come to at the other end of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 20, the parable of the tenants where Jesus talks about a time, it's a, it's a parable, it's a story. It talks about a, a man who owned a farm or a vineyard and he went away for a long time and left that vineyard in the hands of some tenants, some farmers who would farm it. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to collect some of the, the harvest, like rent, I guess. But the tenants, they took the servant, they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. And so the owner sends another servant and the same thing happens. And he sends another servant and the same thing happens. And so the owner then says, if I send my son whom I love, perhaps they'll respect him. But the tenants kill the son. This is the parable Jesus tells at the other end of Luke's gospel. This is where this animosity to Jesus will end. It'll get that bad. But here in, in chapters 5 and 6, we see the beginning of the opposition to Jesus. He's not fitting in and he's not being accepted. People are opposed to him. Luke includes three events that show this growing opposition to Jesus. People getting angry at Jesus. Um, and Luke includes a parable, which feels to me like three parables in the end of chapter 5 there, which illustrates what's going on. This opposition grows because Jesus changes everything. He brings in the new, and the new doesn't fit in the old, and people don't want the new. Jesus is bringing in a new era. And you might think, oh, you know, this is ancient history, this rejection of Jesus, it's way back, it's back there in history. But people still reject Jesus, even today, and so it's helpful for us to think about it. Um, as always, though, we should be reading this part of the Bible in context. And if you think about what we've seen so far in Luke... We've been reading through Luke's orderly account that he's pieced together for his friend Theophilus. This orderly account that shows Jesus' authority, his power, and his compassion, and also his purpose. So in chapter 4, you would have seen Jesus teaching with authority. He, he commands a demon to come out of a person, and the people looking on that day, the thing that surprises them or the thing that they comment on is the power of Jesus' words. And then Luke tells us about Jesus um, healing Simon's mum of a fever. But the way he does it is just to speak. It's the power of his words. He rebukes the fever and it leaves her. Jesus comes with authority and power, but you also see his compassion, his care for each of these individuals that he helps. He comes with power and he also comes with a purpose. And so you remember back in chapter 4, verse 43, he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. And he leaves. He leaves others he may have otherwise healed in order to keep proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He keeps moving. And in last week's passage that Steve took you through, we saw that Jesus has the ability to forgive sins. And then you read into the incident with Levi, the tax collector, and you come to another declaration of Jesus' purpose. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And so as we're reading along through Luke's gospel, we're piecing all this together. He's showing us Jesus, his authority, his power, his compassion, the fact that he can forgive sins, that he's here to call people to repentance and forgiveness. As we read this orderly account, kind of looking over Theophilus' shoulder, we appreciate 1 verse 2, that, Jesus, uh, that Luke has pieced together these things after checking out the eyewitness accounts. He's showing us that Jesus is no ordinary man. He doesn't fit in. He's different. He's actually God the Son who's become the Son of God, the Messiah. And he's also shown us that this Messiah, this Son of God, will suffer 
He's quoted Isaiah and the suffering servant. The Messiah will suffer in order to bring the forgiveness that he offers. And that suffering begins here with the opposition to him. And it will escalate to the point where people want to kill him. So Luke includes these three events, showing us this growing opposition to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're through here all the way, through all three events. In last week's passage, you, you see the Pharisees and the teachers of the law appear on the scene. They were in the room when Jesus double healed the man, when he gave him his legs and when he gave, forgave him his sin. They were there. And in their minds, as Jesus said he forgives the man's sins, in their minds they thought to themselves, who is this fellow? He's committing blasphemy. This is the kind of blasphemy you would stone someone for, you would kill them for. Um, these men, they struggle to come to terms with who Jesus is. He doesn't fit in with what they would expect. The idea that Jesus might actually have the authority to forgive sins, it is not think, it's unthinkable to them. Blasphemy, it's worthy of being stoned to death. That's what they see. And they think that in their heads. They don't vocalise it yet. Next, Luke tells us that Jesus ate with Levi, the tax collector, in his home. And in 5 verse 30, this time, the Pharisees and the tax collectors, they put into words their thoughts. They say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It could be an innocent question at this point. But as you roll into today's passage, the aggression starts to build. So the Pharisees and the teacher of the Lord, they thought to themselves in 5 verse 21, they vocalise a question in 5 verse 30. In today's passage, they actually attack. Um, the they, the people, the they in 5 verse 33, it might be the Pharisees and the teacher of the law. Whoever it is, it reads like an accusation against Jesus for not keeping his disciples in line, not making them fast and pray. Um, but the opposition from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, it keeps stepping up the deeper you get into the passage. So as you come into 6 verse 2, they say, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? They're challenging Jesus. Why are you doing what's not lawful to be done on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they crank it up still further in 6 verse 7. They're looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. They're watching his every action, looking for reasons to accuse him. And at the end of the passage, we're told in 6 verse 11, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So you can see Luke's included these three events, and I hope you can see across them, he's showing us an escalation, growing opposition to Jesus. And Luke shows us the Jewish leaders kind of driving that opposition. So let's have a, a closer look. Go back to the start of the passage. 5 verse 33, um, the question about, passing, uh, about fasting. So it goes 5 verse 33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. It's not an innocent question. It's an, accu an accusation against Jesus. It's like keep your boys in line. They're being slack. It's like they're pointing the finger a bit like, us boys at the dinner table when we were little pointing the finger and saying, he didn't wash his hands. It's, it's an accusation. Jesus is he's being slack. He's not being holy. Accusing Jesus of allowing his followers to be slack. And they mentioned John. So John's disciples, um, if you remember back in chapter 1, John and Jesus, their mothers were cousins. It's almost adding weight to that accusation. Even John's disciples, but you're so slack, Jesus, you don't make your disciples fast and pray. 
you look at it, you think, yes, what's, what's happening is Jesus doesn't fit in. He doesn't do what's expected of him. He doesn't conform to the old mould, the old way of doing things. He's not like any other man. Um, again, as we read Luke's Gospel, we're reading what Luke's put in front of us, and when we see mention of John here in verse 33, you think, when was the last time? It was at the baptism that John came up. John was the one who baptised Jesus, and immediately after that baptism, Luke puts in the genealogy, the, the, the family tree, the line that goes from Jesus all the way back to Adam, this line of sin and death and sin and death. and sin. Jesus is different to everyone in that family tree, everyone in that line. And here it's beginning to show. Um, and people don't like it. They don't like the fact that Jesus is new and different. In an early draft of the sermon, I had a bit of an explanation about what I could find about fasting in the Old Testament, but you know, when you've got student ministers, you've got to be on your, on your game and you take out all the stuff that's not relevant and that's not relevant because this is not a passage that you would go to to argue for or against fasting. That's not the point. The point is Jesus doesn't conform. He doesn't fit in. He's different. He doesn't do what's expected and coincidentally, the kids in KPC Kids this morning, the older, the middle and the big kids, they were looking at Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, When you fast, do not look sombre as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. The Pharisees and others have developed this kind of fasting and prayer into an outward show of their piety. And I wonder if that's as simple as the issue here, whether that's behind the fact that they look, look at Jesus' disciples and say, you're not playing the game. You're slack. You're not genuine. You're maybe, maybe they're saying you're irreverent. Jesus' response, though, is, if you look at it, you've missed the point. The Messiah is here standing in front of you. You ought to be celebrating, not fasting. You fast when you've got something to mourn about, but there's nothing to mourn about here. Look who's here, look who's with you. He uses um, a wedding illustration. So in verse 34, Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Now's not the time to be sad and fasting. The Messiah's here. It's time to celebrate. Um, in the context of Luke's gospel, that's what we've seen. Jesus is being shown to us as God the Son. God the Son become the Son of God, the Messiah. He's walking around on earth with amazing power and authority and compassion and care for people. The response ought to be praise and amazement, not fasting. But the people here, they fail to recognise Jesus for who he is. They don't want the new, they prefer the old way of doing things. Um, Simeon and Anna, they got it right. If you look back in chapter 2 of Luke, remember the old man Simeon? He's nothing like Simeon from morning church. He's a lot older. He praised God when he saw the baby Jesus. He recognised this is the beginning of the new era. This is the Messiah. He's here. Or Anna in chapter 2, verse 37, it says that she used to spend her days fasting and praying in the temple. But once she sees Mary and Joseph with the baby Messiah, she starts talking to anyone who will listen about that Messiah. Everything's changed. She's praising God. They celebrate, Anna and Simeon celebrate because 
they can see the beginning of the new era. The new is coming in, cutting across the old, and they recognise everything is about to change. So back in 5 verse 33, people question Jesus' sincerity, his earnestness, his piety, by saying, you don't make your followers fast and pray like everyone else. And Jesus says, your question shows you just don't understand the times. You don't understand what's happening. You're blind to who's standing in front of you. And that observation stands true for the next two events that Luke puts up against this one. Um, the Pharisees, as teachers of the law, they continue to fail to see who Jesus is. They want him to fit in, to conform, but he doesn't. Jesus changes everything, but people fail to see that. And so the first event, um, oh, before we look at the, the next two events, though, in 5 verse 36, there's the parable that Jesus uses to explain all this. And when I look at it, I think, well, actually, it's like there's three parables. So there's the new and the old garments, and then there's the new and the old wineskins, and then there's the new and the old wine. So the garments first, verse 36, he told them this parable, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. So you don't ruin the new in order to patch the old. It goes on, otherwise they'll have torn the new garment, and the patch for the new, uh, from the new will not match the old. You've wrecked both. You don't do that. And then the parable of the wineskins, verse 37. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, so it's ruined, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. You're getting the point? The new and the old, they don't fit together. You can't fit one into the other. And then he adds in verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. You roll it all together, and Jesus' parable or parables are saying it's time for the new. It's not time to patch the old. The new can't be combined with the old, but there is some who don't want the new. They will hang on to the old. And as we read on in Luke chapter 2, we see two examples of Jesus, the new, changing everything, but people preferring the way they are, preferring the old, clinging to the old. So in 6 verse 1, um, one Sabbath, I think you'll see the way this is introduced. This is not necessarily chronological. Luke's put these events together for us to see a pattern. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. And some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? We look at that and scratch our heads and think, what's the big deal? They were just having a bit of a bite to eat. It's not a big deal. But for the Pharisees, it's a massive deal. They were breaking every rule that the Pharisees had added to the law as far as the Sabbath goes. And it feels like the Pharisees are looking for Jesus and his disciples to set a foot wrong. Um, they've added these extra rules, these extra requirements, and they see Jesus' disciples falling short. It's very similar to the accusation about fasting, isn't it? The implication is that Jesus, he's not concerned about holiness. And look at Jesus' response in verse 3. He answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what was lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And we're not told that that event happened on a Sabbath. The connection seems to be the fact that they're eating food. That's about it. But the consecrated bread that David and his men ate was only for the priests. David went against the law to feed his hungry men. What's the point Jesus is making? Well, Jesus is reminding them that 
the rules were relaxed for David um, when he and his men were in need. Perhaps he's also saying, if you're raising the question of whether Jesus is doing the wrong thing, well, shouldn't you also be, or aren't you also implying that David has done wrong? But that's not the way it's recorded for us in the, in the scriptures. Um, perhaps Jesus is also saying that they've misunderstood the purpose of the, fa- of, the, of, the, of the Sabbath and the law. But he's not finished. He goes on in verse 5. Then he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That phrase, Son of Man, Steve introduced it to it last week because it pops up for the first time there. Son of Man, it's like talking in the third person, saying, if one, like the Queen might, you know, if one would want to, I can't do a Queen accent, but it's that third person way of talking. It's Jesus kind of obscurely saying in the third person, a man might da-da-da. And all through the Old Testament, through the, through the Psalms and Ezekiel and Job, son of man, that term, it's used that way, this sort of third person way of talking. But there's also the way it's used in Daniel 7 when Daniel has these visions of these horrible beasts and then he sees one like a son of man. And that one like a son of man will rule forever. He's the king of kings. And Jesus is using, there's a bit of ambiguity in the way that he's talking. Yes, he's saying a man would, but he's also saying he is the Messiah, the eternal king, the son of man from Daniel 7. And he has authority over the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath and all the laws behind it. Um, The other Gospels, one of the points they make is um, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. You can see that here, if you know the the third person type language. Um, Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's there as a day of rest and it's there for you. You're not there to, to keep rules and serve the Sabbath. But Jesus is saying more than that. He's saying he is the Lord. He is the boss of the Sabbath. He's the son of man. Remember the, the parables that Jesus told? Jesus, he's bringing in the new. This is a change of era. The arrival of the Messiah changes everything. Remember that genealogy back in chapter 3 of Luke, that chain of people, the sin and death and sin and death. The son of man, he's changing all that. And for the son of man... The Sabbath, it's not a burden. It's not this legalistic rule-keeping exercise. The, the Sabbath, it's, it's a day of rest, a day of freedom, a day of grace and mercy and kindness, a day when you remember and celebrate all God's achievements, the way he's made everything and everything he's done. It's a time for praising God. It's like a taste of the eternal Sabbath rest with God in heaven. It's, Jesus' approach to the Sabbath is entirely different. He changes everything. He smashes the harsh legalistic expectations that the Jewish leaders have inflicted the people with. But when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law get this glimpse of what Jesus is saying, they don't like it. They prefer their old ways. And so you come to the third incident or the third event that we're told about from verse 6. It's another Sabbath. So verse 6, on another Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and he was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was, was shriveled. So this man's condition, it's not life-threatening. Healing him could wait till the day after or any day of the week. But we've been reading through Luke's gospel and we know what Jesus is going to do. There's a man who needs help in front of him. Yeah, sure, it's a Sabbath, but we know Jesus is going to want to help. The Pharisees, it's like they know what Jesus is going to do as well. So verse 7, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law 
were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see what, if he would heal on the Sabbath. So whereas Jesus, we know he wants to do good on the Sabbath, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these men, they're seeking to do harm, they're seeking to entrap, they're seeking horrible things. And so verse 8, but Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man in the, with the shoveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good, like he wants to do, or to do evil, like they want to do? To save life or to destroy it? Jesus knows exactly what's happening. He knows exactly what these people are thinking. And he says it as it is. His question in verse 9, it's rhetorical. It doesn't need to be answered. But if the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were to answer it, they would only condemn themselves. And then Luke plays it out for us just so that we don't miss it. Verse 10, Jesus heals the man. He does good. And verse 11, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they can't stop themselves doing evil, playing their part. So verse 11, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. For us, as the reader of Luke's Gospel, we've still got the parables in the end of chapter 5 in mind. In the back of your mind, you've got verse 39, and no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. And here they are, Pharisees that teach the law. They can't take the new. They just want to keep the old. And as you're reading these events that Luke's put together, which one do you prefer? Do you add yourself to that ongoing genealogy of mankind, that cycle of sin and death, the old pattern, harsh, judgmental? Or do you recognise Jesus fully God, fully man, God the Son who becomes the Son of God, the Messiah who has the authority to forgive sin, the suffering servant that Isaiah looked forward to, the one who breaks that chain, the new the one who brings in a new era. Can you see, as you put it all together, can you see how Luke's showing us that Jesus changes everything? Over the years, many, 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 many people have recognised the fact that Jesus does change everything. And so you keep reading through Luke, you come to the end and the disciples are told to get out there and keep preaching this, this gospel of repentance and forgiveness. And you read the sequel, you come into the book of Acts and you read this record of how the gospel of repentance and forgiveness goes out from Jerusalem to the ends of the known earth with people coming to know Jesus, finding new life. And we look back and we, Jesus is written into our calendar forever. He's changed everything. I mean, you, you look at the way we date things before Christ, BC, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, Jesus era. The, the new is cut in over the old. It's recognised in our calendar. But yeah, opposition to Jesus, it, it continues, and you see that in the calendar as well. People have tried to change that name to Common Era and before Common Era. It's sort of aggressive action against Christianity, but they haven't changed the dates. For us as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be naive. We should expect that people will prefer the old, that they won't want Jesus. We should expect that people will disagree with us, that people will question us, that people will challenge us, that they'll accuse us. But the truth is, Jesus changes everything. In today's passage, what you see is Jesus turning harsh, rule-keeping and judgmental legalism into 
freedom and grace and kindness and release from captivity. And that's just the kind of small taste of what you keep, as you keep reading through Luke, it's a small taste of what you'll see Jesus do as he deals with sin and death finally and completely. And so when you accept Jesus as your Lord, your Messiah, your King, when you accept him as your Saviour, then new life starts. Freedom and forgiveness and a kind of a, a grace and a mercy that changes everything. So we keep going through Luke. We'll look at the next little bit next week, but I trust there's enough for us to talk about here tonight. This passage has kind of got layers through it, and we've only had a very quick look across it. But I'm going to pray for us, and I encourage you to keep thinking these things through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for not leaving us in our sin and rebellion. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for making him our Lord and our Saviour. And we ask that for each of us here, we pray that we would see Jesus clearly. We pray that you'll be working in us, changing our hearts and helping us to turn from our old ways to live for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.